You are listening to Mantra and Magic. The podcast where Eastern philosophy meets Western magical practice. Each week, we will introduce you to concepts, people, and tools that we hope will bring you into closer alignment with your true nature and your divine self. We are your hosts, Amy Salara and Jeremy Renta. Welcome to the show. everyone welcome to another episode of mantra and magic i am so pleased to have as our guest today a woman who has been a huge teacher and influence in my life and in my personal yoga practice as well as the way that i teach yoga and the way i teach meditation she is not only a radical yogini who likes to stick it to the man she is a mother of three children and she has written a book that i recommend to every other yoga teacher to read and her name is uma dinsmore tuli she's from the uk and i was so so blessed to get to meet her when i was massively pregnant with my second son and nursing my first one <laughs> I was trying to do a nidra workshop with baby in arms and it was the only time I ever felt accepted as a mother in yoga space where other times if I had my child yeah if I was in my husband's class he was totally okay with it because it's his family but for other teachers like it's not not only not normal it's not done to bring your baby into class with you and it's also seen as disruptive by a lot of the other students. And I felt so held and nourished and I got to soak up the energy of the harmonium as she was singing and thought, wow, if yoga could be like this, if yoga could be like this for everybody where you come in and your body gets what it needs, whatever that is, then I think we would have transitioned into yoga as it was intended, which I think is her goal. So welcome to the show today, Uma. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Amy. I have such vivid memories of being uh, in Arizona when we were sharing the, the practices there. And I remember you really vividly. It matters a lot to me that you felt included, actually. Not just included, but like welcomed. Mm. Because, uh, that feels like yoga's for for everyone. So we can make it not just accessible but like you get a genuine warm welcome then actually that's then I did my job right (laughs) and and I think you emphasize too the the part of yoga that a lot of us in the U.S. don't which is shavasana nidra like the the being present being fully in your body and fully aware of the universe through that rather than inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, which is what we mostly do. And I think um, that that shifted a lot of things for me too, because I, I recognized that I had been trying to conform to that teaching style. And while I think it can serve a purpose, I don't think it needs to be done every single day of the week, every single aspect of the moon phase and every, every body um, I think some bodies would be much better served with other styles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoga Nidra is definitely at the heart of my um, practice and teaching. What got um, you into that? What got me into it? Um, well, I mean, I, I first learned yoga when I was quite little. I was only like four years old. So um, at that point, 
the leaping around aspect of things <laughs> appealed quite greatly. But there's a dreamlike quality to Yoga Nidra, which I, I love very much, you know, and I, and I just feel that that quality of being able to rest, I mean, it's not always still, but it's often quiet, you know, quiet and still is, uh, is what's really um, very important for, for just actually heightening our own awareness of what's called for like if we keep on moving we never really listen in to what what might be called for so i got into yoga nidra as a formal practice about 26 27 years ago when i encountered its formal practice but actually when i met it i think a lot of people have this experience i was like oh i recognize this state of consciousness i recognize it it's like this liminal place between being awake and asleep but then different kinds of states of being dreamlike states and so i recognized it as something that felt very familiar and very creative and nourishing so i was delighted to discover there was like a yoga way to do it it's like such a reliable way to deliver you a person into that state so um yeah so i mean that the formal practice is kind of 20 odd years ago i was doing that but like it reminded me a lot of some of the states of being that I see present in a lot of indigenous wisdom traditions, you know, trance states and dream states and the kind of states that often children spend a lot of time in. They're kind of, you know, they're in a theta state. You call it theta, we call it theta. <laughs> but in that kind of state where you're quite fluidly moving between different states of awareness. And so, yeah, so I've always said it's it's a kind of, it's always been absolutely key, not just to my teaching, but the way I train teachers and yoga therapists we always start most days with yoga nidra i just finished like a pregnancy yoga training and we do two yoga nidras every day and then those are kind of for training purposes they're to help people learn and to to um integrate their learning like but it's actually a good way to access some um, creative inspiration and dream and so i use it myself it's a key of my own practice so i love to share it so that's how we founded the yoga nidra network so that like was to kind of open up nidra and make it less rigid in its um in its in its form really yeah i love that you brought up the yoga nidra network because i think a lot of people don't know where to go where to find it because it's not available in every town um and that is a resource that they can go to and there's recordings of you on there and and other teachers right there's like it's 23 different languages wow three different like i know we're committed to the kind of inclusivity for us especially in, in europe involves multilingual like you know we, we've so we when we've trained teachers the idea is yeah you're right not every yoga studio or or, or yoga place has got a, a skilled yoga nidra practitioner although it's getting more common i'm glad to say there are more people training teachers but um yeah i would the yoga nidra network was a place where you could go and have a a wide variety of choice and not just around the languages but i mean most of them are in english but we distinguish also between us english and british english and then there's kind of you know aussie english and you know it's like there's lots of different so when you hear something in your mother tongue especially something intimate it's a very intimate practice isn't it you just lie down and you're kind of like you can have your headphones or be listening in so i felt it was kind of important to make a commitment to uh welcoming many many different languages so we've trained teachers all over the world 
speaking lots of different languages, everything from like Japanese to Irish. I think we've got the only yoga nidra in Irish up there, in the Irish language, but also, you know. So like Gaelic. Well, no, Gaelic is a different thing, but yeah, it's a Celtic language language of Irish. So that is so, you know, because we were teaching people that I want to hear this in my own language or I want to hear it in my own dialect or I want it. So we're working quite diligently We've got it, the, the Nidra Immersion, which is a really good intro to Yoga Nidra is available in um, in French. So that's en français. We've got that, that whole thing is in French. And then it's, we've got it in Spanish coming through it and Italiano. And, you know, so so that that was part of my commitment. So you could hear it in your mother tongue, which is quite lovely. It doesn't have to be all in English. So, yeah. but yeah, there's a lot of choice. <laughs> Short ones, long ones. Once for the daytime, and I, you know, I do a lot of work with co-creative nidra, so that it's there is no script. There's a set form and a, a structure that's very, very effective and helpful. But like beyond that, there's um there's a freedom with it that's about being responsive, and that's what we you're talking about in that class. Do you remember? It's like actually, you know, I needed to respond to the presence of a new mother in the class, respond to the presence of the baby who was always it was a joy. You know, so like I like for the yoga nidra teachers that we train to be able to do that. You put them down in any given situation and they can respond to what's happening. They're not just going to like trot out a, a bog standard script. I, I think that's not the most useful. It's like teaching a bog standard asana sequence. Like you need to listen to people and 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 see what's what's uh, what's appropriate, you know, for the time and for the day. Well, yeah. I was wondering, so I know that with uh, most of the Nidra classes that I've taken, they do either use a script or they have um, certain words that they're using that are kind of used as the trigger words for what they're hoping, you know, the order that they're saying them so that they get the response or get the reaction to kind of see what the class is is, uh, feeling. Is it more of a feeling state that you get in the way that you teach that you're just kind of feeling what the whole class is needing or what it is that individuals are needing? Or do you go in with an idea about what it is that you're wanting to present? Well, I think oftentimes the best way to find out what people need is actually to ask them. (laughs) So um, what I tend to do is ask people how they feel, ask them what words they want to hear, ask them, (laughs) you know, actually ask people. I mean, how do you know how? I mean, I know nothing. How do I know how you feel? Or what you and you know, and I've been doing this a lot during lockdown. I mean, you know, when we started the first lockdown, um, I I felt the only useful thing I could offer really was a chance for people to to just just get quiet and and give up for a bit and just lie down. So we started doing these co-creative nidras that I've been developing for a long time, where people would actually say, "I want to hear the word courage. I want to be hearing like welcomes or nourished or." soothed or you know whatever and sometimes it's just words like that but yeah i there's a there's a clear structure that i'm using and there might be something seasonal so i i'm you know i'm really rooted into the the seasonal cycle so we i do sort of like you know within the celtic wheel of the year we'll have like an imbolc one which is the arrival of spring or a sawain one which is the the time around halloween or the day of the dead you know so you've got a kind of seasonal shift and honestly if it was just the same every time it doesn't need to be the same every time i mean there are you're right about certain kind of trigger words there's certain kind of processes that you know you want to encourage like moving your awareness around the body or using mantra you know or but i just think you need a little bit of leeway 
I, I, it, I just think it's too rigid otherwise. I think of yoga nidra really is like the, in, the active ingredient is nidra shakti. And nidra shakti just means the power of rest. And, and, and she actually is a goddess form. She's, she's, she's worshipped as a goddess. You worship sleep as a goddess in many, um, many different aspects of the, the yoga and the devotional tradition. So I have actually spent the last seven years writing an encyclopedia of Yoga Nidra, but the whole front end of it is all about honoring Nidra Shakti Devi. And Nidra Shakti Devi is the goddess who embodies the power of sleep. And she is all powerful because like everything that is alive has to sleep. You know, you can go for a long time without any food, but you take sleep away from people, they die pretty quick. Or they go crazy or they go crazy and then they die. Yeah, yeah. Like she's a very, very powerful goddess. Right. My encyclopedia has made sure that we honor her because if you if you don't honor sleep, you know, not much good in your life is going to (laughs) happen. Well, I think that that's also part of like just the Western idea of something has to be just an exercise because that's how yoga is definitely seen, especially in America. So when I went to my first yoga nidra class, or went to when I went to my first yen class, like all of these other aspects of the way that, that the body is actually existing, you know, like it's not just the, the, the limbs of yoga. There's also these other ways of us, you know, connecting with ourselves and connecting with the, with energy itself. And the, the root thing is obviously breath, right? Everything comes back to how we breathe and, and whether or not we're, we're actually taking a breath. I know a lot of the times I have to kind of catch myself in, in sessions to be mindful, to remind my clients to breathe. And they're, you know, they'll be on table and they'll just be kind of laying there. I'm a massage therapist and an energy healer. So I attune a lot of the times to what they're feeling and what they're needing. And I'm like, take a breath. Like you, you seem to have forgotten what you're doing here and you're resting. You're supposed to be like part of the rest is the breath, right? So that's the one constant that we've got going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And, th- and that can be a part of the Nidra practice. And that's one of the reasons why um, I think that, uh, it, it's consciously drawn attention to the sound of the breath and the feeling of the breath going in and out is often part of the settling process in a yoga nidra. And, and that's one of the reasons that mantra is also very powerful because you have to be fully aware of how you're breathing because your voice is being carried on your breath, you know? So that's the, the quality of a different voices is entirely kind of tied in with how that person is breathing, you know? So. I love that you you brought up mantra because I wanted to ask you a bit about that when you're when you were guiding us through that weekend workshop it was a lot of um, what I feel is like bhakti yoga singing to the devis and singing out all of the the joy and the energy flowing through the moment do you is that something that you also incorporate into the way that you teach with um, teacher trainings and like the groups that you're you're helping do mantra are you helping them do mantra yeah i mean i always make sure that there's certain components that i think are are key in fact when i work with women's health i say there are you know yoga therapy for women's health i say there are like three pillars to the kind of boosting and supporting of women's vitality and one of them is yoga nidra like sufficient rest the other one is sangha it's like the actual community that we're creating and you spoke about how you felt welcomed so we're endeavoring to do that online now. So I always have a huge team of people welcoming everyone. We do laughter yoga and we laugh and fly down. And But as well as the, the nidra and the sangha, the bhakti yoga, I think is a key part 
of one's capacity to be kind of fully alive. And in a simple way, you can just define it as the yoga of relationship. You know, we think of it as relationship to a god or a goddess, but it's actually relationship with yourself, relationship with the divine or however you like to see this, you know, but also with the planet herself. So I usually, when I set up my training courses or my retreats or workshops, as you experience, like they always begin with some kind of invocation, you know, to actually, it's as if you're kind of calling out to, to whatever is bigger and wiser than us, that we're here, we're calling the heavens to earth. And so one way to do that is chanting mantra, or I keep it really simple these days and just do really simple um, uh, invocations and prayerful things and repetition of simple mantras. And, you know, and I just think it changes uh, the state that people are in because it it connects you to your heart. It's a heartfelt thing. So singing is part of bhakti yoga, you know, but it's not all singing, but that is part of my, daily practice actually so you know um to chant uh, the hanuman and to sing and connect with the with the power of life <laughs> yeah yeah jeremy and i were looking at some of the ones that have to do with the maha videos which i really want to ask you about all of them too right now and he was reading out a very long one from Matangi before this and I was like I don't think I can say that because <laughs> they're yeah. so the it it's beautiful to hear that long Sanskrit but it's also I think intimidating for a lot of people well also they carry huge power I think there is a kind of I think it, I don't necessarily think it is a it's not a bad thing to feel intimidated by it because actually what you're dealing with is the essence of that power in sound encased in sound and so um there's I think there's two ways to go at it and one is 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 that you know there's a very serious orthodox process with the Mahavidyas of initiation it means you know you don't even approach that matangi mantra until you've done thousands of Ganesha mantras first you know it's like so I know folk who work with those very um, orthodox uh, you know Shakta Tantra traditions the the Sri Vidya traditions you know and that and they and and I think you know they, they take me aside and they say Uma you know you've got to be super careful about this stuff because you know, you know, there's not everyone is going to be initiated and all that. And you're certainly like not, you're being, re- I'm really unorthodox in my approach to it. And the other way to look at it, which I kind of, and I, I respect that. So I don't tend to teach the, 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 the mantras that call on those goddesses in those formal ways, because I actually don't think that that's a respectful thing for me to do. But what I do do is call with humility and love the names of the goddess. We just sing their names. You know what I mean? And, and that's it. And, and I've been really supported and encouraged by my South Asian friends who are like rooted in that, that Shakta Tantra tradition who just say, listen, when you read the Devi Mahatmya, what it says is that every woman and girl holds that energy of the Devi within them. The, the Devi, the goddess, manifests in every woman and girl. So respect and honor for the those living in these <laughs> female bodies is, is a way to honor the goddess. And she said, you know, we, she was with us a few times, this dear friend of mine, who's actually helped me with the with the Sanskrit aspect of this new book, which she's she's kind of like 
checked it out that I'm not saying anything. She goes, well, this is a bit poetic and this is a bit. But basically, the basic idea is if you call on Ma with full devotion and humility, she's there. She's like just there. When we sing, like we sing a beautiful, there's a beautiful kirtan just singing um, Dhyay Matakali. And then it calls on Dhyay Matangi Mat and Kamalatmikama, who's like the twin goddesses of creativity and sexuality. And then it's just calling on Jema, 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 over and over again. And honestly, you know, we sat there and she goes, they're here. Those goddesses are here because out of all of these, these people's hearts, they're calling their names. And if you call their names, they come. Why do they come? Because we, we, we kind of frigging need them. You know, like the, the deep feminine, the matrix of the deep feminine needs a lot of repair right now. You know, and I'm not just talking about like women's health. I'm talking about peoples of all genders, like honoring the deep feminine within us and honoring the deep feminine in the form of the earth herself and all living things. So, so we really need a bit of help. So I really think they're just so, so willing to be there for us. And you just feel it. It's like a descent of grace. So I don't, I don't really teach those complex mantras. I just say like, call their names, sing the holy names with all your heart and, and just feel how it is. And I've been really positively like affirmed and, 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 and respect, you know, respectful of, of my friends who are like deep in those Orthodox traditions saying, Uma, just call their names, call the names of Ma and, uh, and she'll, she'll be there. <laughs> so, you know, and especially like, I, I, I'm, I keep coming back to this beautiful image of, you know, you showing up in that amazing space where we were teaching Arizona, you know, someone shows up with their little baby, they're embodying Ma. You know, they're like, that's what the, the pregnant body is or the breastfeeding body is. They're like embodying Mar and they show up. And so we need to be kind of really welcoming to them because um, because they're representing her. So respectful. All the Mars, you know, is a necessary thing. I think. <laughs> and as you say, that doesn't always happen in yoga. It's just a bit of an inconvenience. People are like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll stick you in the pregnancy class or the postnatal class and, you know, get out of our hair while we do the proper yoga but i'm like no this is the proper yoga these mamas here and people caring for the little people and caring for their elders you know that's something we've got going on a little bit right now um because we're able to meet in parks because it's nice big open air and uh, we found one with a good playground and stretch of grass and the kids come running to mom when they want a snack halfway through class if they want it or they sit down next to mom and do yoga and dads run back and forth push on a swing come back to the mat and we get to just be as families and not have to worry about like confined space and I I'm concerned because that we need an indoor space soon because Arizona gets so hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For now. Desert. It doesn't. Yeah. But I love this. I mean, what you're describing to me is the heart, like since 2005, I've been running this um, community yoga camp, which is like the mother of all yoga camps. It's like 10 days it goes on. And like out of the two, 300 people who come, we usually have about 70 children, seven, zero children and babies the youngest one who ever came was six weeks old so there's a lot of kids and if you listen actually there's some yoga nidras that are recorded there you can hear all the kids running around the temple space which is obviously a, a massive yurt but you can hear everything and that was part of it was for 
for everybody to feel that they could just live their yoga. And now that requires informality, doesn't it? I mean, you don't just say, oh, you know, because the kids need a pee or <laughs> they need some food or you, you don't. It wouldn't really be yoga to be like, no, 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 don't let the children in. And they're wandering in and out. And, you know, to me, um, that that environment was my kind of ideal place. We do yoga nidra five times a day. And there is always the sound of mantra somewhere in that field. Like it kicks off in the morning. I did. I would do the dawn mantras. And then all through the day, there'd be someone somewhere chanting, singing round the fire in some informal way or in a more formal puja or something in the temple. And looking back at it now, we're all in lockdown. We couldn't do that last year. But like the energy of that, I think is any place where people are willing to like, um, you know, allow the family life to be kind of part of the yoga or, or vice versa, you know, to bring that in to the, to the families. It's, it's, it's a nourishment, really. That's why that's one of the things that you've been such an inspiration for me with is that that's possible. And now seeing that that's happening, it's like actually happening and that it can, it can grow. And something that a dear friend of mine always talks about is by locating, being able to be in two places at once. I'm like, that's what every mother does. Every single parent who's at home with children is like, yes, I am fully present here and I'm fully present here all the time. If you're doing your spiritual practices and you're playing with trains on a, and Legos and engaging because you have to be able to go back and forth constantly. Otherwise you're not serving yourself and you're not serving your children. So what a beautiful like snapshot of what life could be like that you've created that space. Now we yeah. just have to go to the UK. <laughs> no, what you need to do, see, because that would be like, you don't want to do that. You want to have it. You've already got it. You got well, the We seeds. do, but I'm saying I want to come visit you. <laughs> seeded camps everywhere. And we did yeah. have, you know, people came in from far away. Like we had, there was a group of ladies from Moscow came once. They all showed up with their, bought Wellington boots and came with their kids. And but I was like, wouldn't it be better to have something like this on the banks of the Volga or something? Or, or set it up so that I the it's that it's grassroots, it's community based, and for sure the, the we can share uh, the skills we found, with, and and you know share the formats and the idea. That would be that would be my idea. Would be that they pop up all over the place. Everybody needs a little grassroots community yoga camp. We don't want our camp to get so big that it, you know, it and it, it's very hard to communicate what that's like because I think in the states you've got things like wanderlust and you know what you know all these bit and burning around these big kind of commercial event and it's not like that at all like it breaks even every year you don't make any money you just got enough money to like make sure the people who mine the land are cared for and we've right. got the composting toilets and the guy who brings the sauna and everybody who needs their you know who's put effort and money and paid for their their gasoline and you know whatever and the, and the what the firewood and the food so it's always at the end, it's just like all the money comes in. It's not intended to be a, a kind of profitable commercial enterprise. It's intended to nurture and nourish a community. And to be honest, yeah. it kind of feeds. It's a lot of teachers who come, but it's beautiful to see them look like looking after each other. Nobody gets paid for teaching. You know, you don't pay the teachers. They just get free tickets. They can bring their family. That's how it works. Yeah, know? everybody's there out of love. It's yeah. like just all yeah, it's, and it's very tangible and beautiful thing. And my sense is that those kinds of experiences really feed people's hearts. And at the moment when things are so challenging, it's like a kind of, I know you've got a deep well 
of 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 all that love and years of that kind of stuff somehow in your boat you know in you so you can nourish yourself and we can stop from going crazy because <laughs> we've still got it inside we can you know we're not going to go hungry for that kind of connection or indeed like i've been fortunate in that a lot of the training stuff i'm running i'm i'm working with people that i know from that environment like so you step into the zoom room and it's like oh we've come into some really nice gathering here and all these people know and trust each other and yeah so there's ways to cultivate that stuff on even online yeah oops i'm just sitting a bit more closely in the light because we're it's <laughs> evening time it is the sun is setting for you um i i was gonna ask for your facilitations with men because you do have two sons as well as a daughter um do you feel like there's specific ways that they can still relate to some of these cycles do you put because them in your book so for everybody who hasn't read yoni shakti yet um because i've been yelling at everyone to read it so far. So I feel like there isn't anybody left in the world who hasn't, but perhaps <laughs> there is if they're listening just now. Um, you match the Mahavidyas with the life cycles of a woman. And for me, that also matches up with the cycles of the moon every month, because there's kind of that like growing phase and then the retreating phase. And so I can easily see how women would relate to working with these types of energies. Is there a way that you feel like men kind of can channel in too so that- Absolutely. I mean, everything that's alive is a cyclical being. It's a, we live on a cyclical planet. The planet herself is creating seasons and cycles because she's spinning on a tilt around the, around, around the sun. So um, I, I think to, in fact, to, to resist the idea that we're, we're cyclical is, is to go against, against life herself. So I really encourage um, uh, men and people of all genders, like wherever you are on that spectrum, is just to look into your daily rhythms, your circadian rhythms. So there's a daily rhythm. There's a 90 minute rhythm with your breath. There are seasonal rhythms. Obviously, that varies depending on what which latitude you happen to be on. But my sense is that the lunar cycles are really important. I work a lot with like postmenopausal women. They don't have a, a, a menstrual cycle, but they're for sure cyclical. So a really helpful thing to do is for people to check out their natal moon. And the natal moon isn't anything fancy. It's just what phase of the moon was it the day you were born? And what you notice is that for men, things like your sperm count and sperm motility will increase every time that natal moon comes around, which is an important if people are seeking to conceive. But like when you look at creative cycles, you can see that that's boosted, not necessarily by like tying everybody's creativity into like, oh, well, everyone's going to be doing this at the full moon or that at the new moon. But actually every single being has its own dance with the moon. So check, it's a really easy thing to do. You can check out your natal moon and then you can see, just be interested. How does that affect my creative cycles, my vital energies, my kind of desire for uh, society and community or my desire for solitude and just have a look at it. I think the best thing to do is rather than set up, you know, parameters that like this is the right way to do it or this is the wrong way to do it. I just say, just be interested, especially in relations to the moon and the seasonal cycles. I mean, here in England, we have a huge variety of, of light. So mid midsummer, it doesn't get dark till like 11 o'clock at night. And it's bright again, like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. 
you know, and our northerly friends, it doesn't get dark at all. But come the winter time, you know, I have to have a little sad light on because like it doesn't get light till 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning and then it's going to get dark again by three or four, you know. So you've got to like, I think every being is like that. And the, the Mahavidya cycle I was looking at is a way of looking at those cycles writ large over a person's whole life. You know, and you can see them as initiations into power. That's how I presented it. Like, so for in a female body, there are certain key things that you can see happening, like menarche, the first period, and you can see lactation or maybe pregnancy, and also the processes of menopause and aging. But you see it also unfolding in processes of like greeting different stages of our lives as humans, greeting, you know, productive stages, middle age stages, what that actually means. And to resist all of that, I think is, is, is a kind of madness. We have been, I mean, it's a kind of part of the, you know, I don't want to get too political, but you have to see this as a political act because like the military industrial complex has desired for everybody to show up because economically that's what you want. Well, you want people on a linear thing. They're going to be productive nine to five, Monday to Friday, or every shift that show up or however they work. And it's just inhuman. It's inhuman to ask that to happen. So I think to my, if I had a kind of big overall mission with the yoga and the yoga therapy, it's like to help people restore the wisdom of their own rhythmic cycles. And that's not just women. I mean, women get, you know, there's a lot of stuff with female bodies that you, you can't not notice it. Like, you know, there's blood, it's messy. It might be painful. Like, you, you know, you can't get away from it. Whereas I think people can pretend like they're not cyclical beings. And that's not so good. I'm actually, having said that, it's got dark here, so I'm going to have to turn a light on. <laughs> but yeah, I think restoring rhythmic cycles, yoga is great for that, isn't it? Because it helps people to listen in. And that's why you don't want to be doing the same frigging yoga practice every single day of the week, all year round, because that isn't really how life is, is it? It's not like that. Over this past year where uh, my partner and I live, I've actually been able to keep track of the moon as it's passed. And like, it's, it's interesting to actually watch the cycle of the stars as they've passed as well. Um, can you speak at all to uh, what, what people can do to start an initiation for them to be able to kind of get in and start something new? Oh, bless. I think it's really nice to use your yoga practice, actually, to make a little sacred space. Um, I get yourself a little moon calendar. You know, mm -hmm. simple as that. And just, um, I keep track of it and tracking your dreams. That's a great, simple thing to do, you know? Maybe notice, um, you know, make it, and just have a little, I think like a little short journal entry for yourself. That's a simple way to do it. But you could always begin with something kind of a little bit ceremonial to mark your, your start with it. You could have a little fire, you know, you could, or a little candle if you're in an apartment and you can't go light a fire outside. But, you know, get connected with the elements. I think that's the key thing. And that, you know, if you're looking for some nice ritual way to get a bit of magic, that's the other name of your podcast, is it? The magic yeah. is like, just really is about paying attention. People often think, oh God, that was magical, Uma. How did you do that? And I'm like, well, no, I just, I just paid attention to the earth, you know, so you can set up a little, sacred magical kind of connection for yourself so i'm gonna i'm gonna connect with my rhythmic cycles i've got all the elements here you've got the earth i've even got you know get your little spider plant and have a little flame and have a little pot of water and connect with some incense or something that connects with the air do you know what i mean like you're and, and i just think keep it simple but like honor the elements and honor the cycles of 
of your life and even just start with your breath you know notice that has cycles i often invite people to like welcome their inhale as if it was the dawn and the exhale as if it was the dusk and you, you can see everything can be mapped on like you were saying to the breath and you can honor all those different elements and cycles within each breath right are there any um any of the maha videos that you would say are easier to start with in terms of working or or ones that you're like maybe consider what you're asking for if you invite them in yeah i think it might depend on your stage of life i would say because um i mean this the, this yantra i have behind me is tumavati who's like the crone the grandmother energy and and she's kind of ruling the roost in my world right now but that's because i'm you know in my mid 50s and kind of looking at and i'm you know looking after elders a lot but what i think is to if you're looking at just an understanding of the whole rhythmic process is tara is a very tara devi is like she's the one who guides us through she's who you go to if you just want on a hand you know to get through something so she and she to me in the way i was presenting the mahavidya which means the the deep the great wisdom goddesses the way i was presenting them is that she stands for cyclical wisdom you know a bit like the patron saint of of menstruality consciousness but she's also like any kind of cycle so maybe thara is a good place to start for everyone but like i do think it depends on your stage of life and like where you are so women who are really kind of involved in family and and involved with um, making space for other people in your life, then Bhuvaneshwari, she's the one whose body is the whole universe and she makes space for everyone. She's like one big lap, you know? So some people really identify with that. If you're parenting, I think Bhuvaneshwari is the kind of, or even like, you know, you were describing, I mean, you know, like people who are in, in that caregiving role, you know, like massage practitioner, that's real Bhuvaneshwari energy, you know, it's like she's making space, she make a nice welcome. So I think it's worth kind of feeling into what's uppermost at this stage in your life, knowing that it will change, you know. It was, it was yeah. interesting when I first started, I was drawn automatically to Kali just because destruction, time, you know, it was, a, it was a, that hard mama energy of kind of like get in place. And it is really interesting to me that it, there has been this progression. When I first started, I was like, being a devotee, it seems like it takes so much where you're like, I'm going to be in this exact same place. And, you know, like you said, now and, you know, 10 years from now and the, you know, the going through the, the hundred names of Kali and realizing that there's all of these different aspects of just that one aspect of the mother goddess. But it's something that I haven't really delved into of like looking at, you know, some of the other, you know, Bhuvaneshwari or, you know, Dumavati is a little scary to me, just like Bhagalamukti, like some of these other energies are they're very, they're very intimidating. So like, how, how is it that you feel like you can recognize when it's time for you to kind of move on from one initiation, uh, working with one energetic of a goddess to move into something else? Well, I think some people would say that you would need some powerful guru figure to guide you through. Um, and that's one way to see it that you actually ask. But I think that with all humility, um, you can kind of see these things unfolding in your life. I, I'm just going to give a little example because it's a bit hard to talk generally about it. But I remember at one point in our lives, like we were really stuck. You know, there was a lot of illness and poverty and things weren't going very well. It went on and on and on. I remember us calling on one of our 
teachers at the time and we said, you know, we want some guidance here. What, what's going on? And he just kept saying, has Nilipta, that's my husband who painted these yantras, has he finished painting that Dhumavati yantra yet? I mean, why are you asking us this? He says, well, has he finished painting that yantra? He said, no, we don't want to talk about the yantra. We want to talk about suffering. We're having a really hard time here. And he said, what's the yantra he hasn't finished? And we said, Dhumavati. He said, well, there you go. But he has to finish that. He has to finish the Dhumavati yantra and then things will change. So do you mind, like, I think they manifest themselves, like, you know, and I think especially, you know, Chinamasta, mm-hmm. like she's, she's this goddess who cuts off her own head and feeds from the streams of blood and then the blood is feeding the mouths of her devotees and like she is, takes no prisoners, but she needs support. She calls in the support. So I think often people see in moments of like near death experience or postnatal recovery, which can amount to the same thing, you know, um, that actually her energy is there. And I think, uh, yeah. It's like an energetic, energetic of community as well. It's like so everybody is supporting everyone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that, um, you know, it, it takes kind of humility and, um, and just a willingness to, to see who, you know, what, what kind of help do you need? <laughs> Right. I think that, yeah, stuff, so I'm just like, I'm just all I need is a bit of help now, you know. Mm-hmm. See who shows up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. Well, I, I was also want to ask, um, there is a, there's obviously an honoring of other cultures and there's there's a, a desire to not want to do we talk about social appropriation a lot on this on our podcast. Um I feel like the more that I've started to understand the psychological aspects of what some of these gods and goddesses are speaking to that are inside of us, um, I felt a lot more empowered and it takes away some of the mystery. Um, do you feel like, uh, do you feel like you have to have someone else to help to help interpret um, what these things are? Or do you feel like some of these things kind of show up as, as what they mean to you in a personal way? Bless you, Jeremy. I think this is a really important question because on the one hand, I mean, who am I? I'm this white Irish lady here talking about the Maharidya. This is a South Indian tradition from the East Indian, you know. What right do I have to even be speaking about them? And I would say that actually, we've got to be really clear about the cultural origin. This is an East Indian phenomenon. They're from Assam, they're from Kamakya, they're from a place that was very powerfully dedicated to Ma, you know, and the, the British Raj never got there and the, the Aryan invaders never got there. They held fast that like she's in the ground there really powerfully. So to have respect for that and honor for that and deep gratitude that there's an unbroken tradition of mother worship that comes out of that part of East India, out of Assam. So I have full respect for this. And I would say there's a distinction between like cultural appropriation which is where you pick something up and steal it without reference or respect to its origins. And then there's cultural appreciation. And I'm engaged in a lot of debates with a lot of South Asian colleagues and a lot of wise people have a lot of things to say about this, like Susanna Barkataki's work is really important on this front. You know, So I think you need to be aware and conscious of what's going on. But I also think, listen, this is the great mother. Do we think that she is confined to people who speak Bengali or to people who can only ever visit, who were brought up in that. No, she is everywhere and everything and she is going to show up anyway. And I think it's actually somehow a deep 
disrespect to the goddesses to say that you can only worship them in these forms and that you it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you know, my, I've got a whole kind of like intercultural thing happening in my own household, you know, like so um, my husband's from India, my kids are growing up, you know, this way. And like, so it's part of our life is the more, you know, it's like where I use the term mongrel with pride, actually. I know mongrel is often considered to be a, a, an offensive um, <laughs> kind of uh, insult. But I'm, I'm like a proud mongrel and a proud mother of mongrels. And like, that's one set of way of making sense out of the cultural stuff is that it's all going to be in there in, in in all of us. But I do think what you say about like she manifests in life herself and every place around the world has got some different way of engaging with her. And I just give gratitude and thanks every day of my life that in India somehow doesn't mean it's great to be a girl or a woman in India. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like there is, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we can give gratitude and thanks and do what we can to uplift and support our sisters in India, right? Right. <laughs> right now, that support. But I mean, that's what, you know, it's like, so there is a political element of this that's really important not to not to hide, hide from or pretend it's not there. But I don't think that means that like the Mar is, is not going to show up in Arizona. <laughs> or Colorado or wherever you happen to be there are Ma temples all over the place and some of them you know are full power like South Asian traditions and others are like I have that tradition in my own my mother's line you know like we have like goddesses in Ireland like Queen Mary I was gonna say yeah you've got like Morgan Bridget. and you've got Bridget and or Breed and like yeah. you they're so, the same so I do think that the Ma is a lot bigger than the rest of us and like you know I think that the key element of this is humility and respect. Right. I, I, and I think that you're kind of doing a disservice to, to the culture itself by looking at it with fear or looking at it from a standpoint of, I can't be involved in that because that's something that those people do. It's almost the same as patriotism in reverse. You know, it's like, that's their thing. We don't want to be involved in that, but it's like the more that you engage and the more that you actually are able to, you know, again, breathe into it and be a part of it, then you can see what it is that's, that maybe is something that you haven't, you know, hasn't, shown up in your life and it's going to, it might show up in a, you know, a mantra that you hear at a, at a yoga studio or a, at a yantra that you see somewhere and you're really drawn to the image for some reason, you know, it could be an, a, you know, a picture of, of uh, Sri Lakshmi or, you know, anything that could just could strike something in you that you've really been lacking. And it's kind of like, I, I know this, like the, the first time that I, I sat in ceremony in an ayahuasca ceremony, I saw, I had all this wash of Sanskrit that washed over me. And I was just like, I have no idea what I'm looking at, but I'm drawn to it. Like it makes sense to me. So I feel like it's, there's, there's something out there a lot of the times that we don't know what it is that we're missing. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, you know, they'll change religions. And I'm not a, I'm not, I was grew up in the Southeast. So, you know, Christianity was kind of forced on you. There weren't a lot of other options. It seemed like, so to be, to be able to have the freedom to choose uh, my own spiritual path at this point is just, it's, you know, it's liberating. It's absolutely wonderful. So yeah, it's also an immense privilege. Mm-hmm. So I'm fully aware of that level of privilege because actually to be able to make choices like that, that we can, is, is, uh, as you know, it's, it's not something that's available to everyone, you know, it's so, that's why I do feel I feel a kind of certain responsibility to give thanks and praise to the people who have like preserved these traditions against mm-hmm. all odds. You know, they, they, they preserved these wisdom traditions, this respect, the, all the yantras and the mantras, they kept them alive 
in the face of really powerful destructive forces of colonization you know so i think it's really important that we you know that we see any connection we have could be a really heartfelt personal connection but we can also manifest as like stepping up and 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 supporting and, and honoring the the um you know the indigenous wisdom holders and at the same time developing your own relationship with this and that's good so when i speak about this i always i'd like to you know i like to make sure people know the roots so you can go on back to the roots it's like you know like when you kind of like that we could start off talking about scholarship but it's like giving proper citation like letting people know where it comes from it's not makey uppy it's not some new age makey uppy thing like this is ancient stuff so you know we go careful yeah. grandmothers don't like to be disrespected no. <laughs> would you well, like we have just a little bit of time left would you talk briefly about the history of yoga the way that um it began and where it came from because most people don't go back to the roots of that you just mentioned the roots and it's yeah it's different i do a little kind of potted history because i did quite a bit of endeavoring to present that in yoni shakti and it's the same thing in the nidra shakti book i've gone right back like really when you're looking at a lot of these practices and traditions you have to look into the kind of matri matriarchal and indigenous roots of the practices that honor the goddess and yoga kind of came out of tantra you know the hatha yoga project okay which is largely a very masculine process and a lot of people when you train as a yoga teacher you like learn about the the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, or you study the sutras, or maybe you study late, like things like the Bhagavad Gita, and all these texts are really important, but like they're floating on a sea that has a really deep bed, like the bed of that ancient knowing is um, rooted in, in the land, like the Samkhyan philosophy that is the philosophy of yoga's kind of ancestor, as it were, it's in the Upanishads. And so when Patanjali is writing, he's like, rooting back into those that Upanishadic um, knowledge and that has an even earlier um, root which is in the rooting of the land we spoke about elemental connection so I think that it's kind of it really difficult to to, to codify in, in kind of western historical terms and just look at these recent texts and honestly the recent history of yoga is really um, one of the best reflections on it is that a book called Yoga Body, which you may have come across. And Yoga Body explores the kind of military and bodybuilding kind of roots of things like Ashtanga Vinyasa. So it's British military training and Swedish bodybuilding and calisthenics. And, you know, a lot of that is in those. They're very modern forms that were intended largely for adolescent boys, actually. In them, you know, to keep their their sexual urges under control and to to be, you know, big up the the capacity for discipline. But actually, when we look back, I, what I found was like, you know, groups upon groups of mother goddesses and and uh, yoginis, and they will come in in groups like communities of uh, of uh, female, you know, matrilineal teachings that are very ancient and yeah. Like, like Tantra is like the mother of yoga, you know, the yoga that we know. So I think that's probably enough. There's a lot I could say. There but. is, but I'm so glad that you did uh, that okay. little brief bit, because I think most people, they only go back to potentially. I'm funny, I'm like looking at the books on my desk right across behind my computer. It's the sutras of Patanjali. So 
<laughs> so I feel like, and the Bhagavad Gita is right next to it. That's all I got in my yoga teacher training. And there wasn't anything beyond that. And not to say that that was bad. It's just, I think even most yoga teacher trainees don't know. They don't, there's nothing that roots it deeper yeah. beyond just that physical embodiment of controlling your energy. And some of them, like we went a little bit into the other limbs of yoga where we got, you know, the, the other branches of the tree illustrated to us. And we had someone come in to do Sanskrit for one day. We had someone come in to do restorative for one day. <laughs> we had these little glimpses into other styles, but for the most part, I think a lot of the, the yoga that I encounter, especially here in Phoenix is just Ashtanga and it's Ashtanga rooted and it, it serves people um, that in ways that are really good, but I think it could also go much deeper. And, yeah. and that's what I'm excited to hopefully help bring and introduce with people like you. Well, and blessings on you for sharing this. I'm hoping that your listeners are getting something useful. Yeah. <laughs> making a good, a, you know, a really a good contribution of like deepening and widening people's connection to their practice. So, yeah, great. So well, is there anything else that you would like to share? Anything you've got coming up that you... Well, I'm just going to think what will be a good way to end is that I actually think that... Um, it, it can be useful to be aware that if we actually want yoga to be the kind of welcoming, nurturing place that you described right at the beginning and, and the way Jeremy was talking about helping people reconnect with their, their trusting themselves. And one of the things I did during the first lockdown was to launch a campaign. I'm not sure if you're aware that Yoni Shakti is a book, but there's Yoni Shakti, the movement. Mm -hmm. and Yoni Shakti, the movement was a, is, is a movement to eradicate the abuse of women within yoga, like all kinds of different abuses. You know, there's many kinds and a lot came to light. And I feel that it sometimes made people think, oh, my yoga isn't a safe space. I can't practice there. But I really encourage people to to educate themselves if you've got the original edition of yoni shakti then you can download all the new stuff i wrote which was in lots of ways quite i mean some people found it shocking but i was like really no if you've got structures that are like those kind of hierarchies then there'll be power abuses within them so a really empowering thing to do is to sign up as a supporter go to yoni shakti the movement.com and we're looking to make sure we get a thousand and eight yoga teachers yoga practitioners yoga teacher trainers who who, who sign up to say we're, we're committed to eradicating abuses in yoga because what we want is for yoga to be a place where people can really learn to trust their own instincts and you know their own cycles and so to do that we want to make sure that everyone's aware that there are you know things you can watch out for things you can include within your own practice so i encourage everyone to sign up as a supporter and you can download all the information and share it with people so they go yoni shakti the movement.com okay so we'll put that in the show notes too so people thank can you. Just link straight to it yes thank you so much uma for your time you. and your knowledge and wisdom and joyful storytelling i could listen to you Oh, they oh, <laughs> I mean, it, honestly it's a blessing to to have you speak about the time that i spent there you know that was the first time we toured in in the u.s and it's kind of nice to reflect on on the fact that one makes connections and meets wonderful people along the way and like yeah 
I'd love to offer you a final little blessing, which is just a really simple awareness that with great respect and love, I honor my heart, my inner teacher. That's what I like to mm. just with great respect and love, I honor my heart, my inner teacher. Jagadam de Mataki, Jai, she whose body is the world, we honor her. Jagadam de Mataki. Thank you. Oh, so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.